Welcome back to Leaders of Color, a podcast where we feature racialized youth from across Canada who are creating opportunities for other youth in their communities. On today's episode, we are joined by Eamon Amir. Eamon is a community builder from Toronto working at Microsoft who's passionate about making Canadian STEM more inclusive. In 2017, she joined the Greenhouse Social Impact Incubator, where she started a research project to figure out why only 22% of STEM professionals are female. Three years later, she created Our Stories in STEM. Welcome. Hi, Sarisha. How's it going? I'm well. How are you? Good. I was just re-listening to the intro you gave, and it uh, sounds very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, that's your testament, right? <laughs> but it's so funny because when you listen back to what, you know, the the time it took, like, for example, when you said, oh, it's three years ago, it really does not feel like three years. But, yeah, it just blows by, eh? Yeah. And I'm sure you understand, too, with like your own nonprofit that you really don't remember the time at all. It just kind of goes by so fast. But, yeah, it's. Yeah. I totally feel that we're approaching our first anniversary or like our one year birthday next mm-hmm. this month, actually, not even next month. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has not felt like a whole year has gone by at all. Yeah, but I guess that's just the nature of this kind of stuff. you know. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I don't know about you, but I've been paying a lot of attention to what happens on Twitter because I am obsessed with it. And I don't know if you've recently seen some Canadian authors have been um, plugged into J.K. Rowling's cancel culture letter oh that she god. signed. <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah, I've been following that closely. And oh my gosh, it's so funny that you asked this. It's like, it's almost like she's doubling down on her stance. I mean, I see a lot of people, uh, even for a PR move, sometimes they'll say, you know, they'll do an apology and then they'll mind their own business and just get off Twitter and stop talking. But she really, mm-hmm. I don't know who's her PR person and she can't even fake being, um, yeah, inclusive at all. Like, even if those are her beliefs or, I mean, not that I agree, um, you know, sometimes you just need to know when to shut up and she really does not know to just turn it off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I really feel that. And I saw some Canadian authors like Margaret Atwood, who I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily a big fan of, and Malcolm Gladwell also on there, which was interesting. Um, but I thought because we're talking about our stories in STEM, mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering which celeb quote unquote cancellation has hit you the hardest? Honestly, I mean, it's funny that you asked that. It is J.K. Rowling for me. She... Like, I read all the Harry Potter books growing up. I was obsessed with Hermione. You know, all those characters, you really see yourself in them. Um, and then, so thinking about other trans youth that are that probably felt the same and then finding out that their fave is doing this and this was my fave. I mean, I wanted to mm-hmm. get, you know, the Deathly Hollows tattoo, which I'm so glad I didn't. <laughs> like, you know, like so many things that you really look up to with this entire genre and then then you find out like, oh, this is actually not a great person. And then you really look at what they've created with a different lens as well. Like you actually realize, oh, she didn't put any of these characters out in their stories. She didn't actually mm-hmm. have a platform or a voice. And then you're thinking back like, wait, did I actually support someone who should have been supported? I mean, so it's it's a tricky position to be in, um, especially with the work that I do now, which is with young children and with sharing stories that are inclusive and relevant that they can see Mm -hmm. and then you think back to when you were you know an eight-year-old kid reading this stuff so that one definitely hit me very hard it hit me more hard I think because of the unwillingness to learn yeah you see 
um, you know, there are so many problematic people, but a lot of them, you know, they don't have to be canceled right away. It is a learning opportunity. So instead of learning and understanding and listening to the people that have supported you for many years, you kind of just double down on your opinions. I think that hit me the hardest where I was like, oh, JK Rowling, no, why did you do that? (laughs) Well, that's our hot take, I guess, for the week. (laughs) JK Rowling, what are you doing? I know. Um, But speaking of you working with young children and Mm -hmm. storytelling, can you tell us a little bit about what your organization does or your book does um, and how you started it? Sure. So, um, so our, uh, our, um, our stories end because we want to feature stories across the board. The first volume features our stories in STEM specifically. So our mission is to bring contemporary and relevant stories of a diverse group of Canadian women to young children through picture books. So girls under 10 or just children under 10 in general absorb the most information in visual and literary formats. So our collection features relatable and current stories of triumph and struggle of girls and other women who look just like them. Um, And then all proceeds from our book sales go back towards children's literacy orgs. Um, And we really wanted to work in this field because the exposure and impact of storytelling through showcasing role models, you know, women who have achieved something or who are struggling through something um, at the early childhood education level, which, you know, is from like six to 12 uh, it's enormous. So we really wanted to create a socially impactful business model to help drive that change. Yeah, that's amazing. I definitely am on board for having representation <laughs> for young women and young girls in particular, where they see themselves yeah. represented. I know for me, I never saw anyone with like the shade darker than light beige in anything yeah. ever. Um, and if I did, it was often having to identify with um particularly black characters for example mm-hmm. like watching that's so raven growing up and and having that be kind of the closer identity marker than whiteness mm-hmm. um and all of the the problems that come with that when it comes to anti-black racism in racialized communities oh, um so yeah i think having that representation is amazing like i know i have young nieces and and cousins mm-hmm. who would definitely be um not only interested but would gain something from seeing that so that's awesome Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head where we do have these characters and we did grow up with some characters, but it's so um, stereotypical in a way where if you're not this like powerful woman, if you're not, you know, speaking out and what about those people who are maybe introverted and they're just as powerful and their stories matter just as much as and they don't have to be this outspoken go getter type of person. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there's definitely a lot of space for these nuanced stories of people who are refugees and their story doesn't have to be one of pain and struggle. It can be an everyday story of someone who's just going about their life and going about their day. You don't have to sell your trauma to be relatable. Um, So I think that's something that we really wanted to focus on to find stories of people that people can just relate to that aren't of, you know, a really traumatic journey of immigration and refuge to another country. And then you're selling stories of, Um, You're almost like pandering your trauma of maybe being from the LGBTQIA community and things like that. Like, I don't think, I think we wanted to be really mindful of the fact of sharing stories that people want them to be known as. Like, you Mm -hmm. want to be known as someone who does something versus someone who is something, you know? So that's what we wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely relate to that, especially the not wanting to sell your trauma Mm -hmm. as 
uh, main focus. That's exactly why I started leading in color was because yeah. the advocacy space was just hell bent on pursuing us as these like poor, poor racialized folks who needed saving yeah. from the white saviors of the world. Um, oh, and I was not having that. So I definitely <laughs> identify with that. Mm-hmm. What motivated you personally to start doing this work? Yeah, for sure. So um, honestly, when I was 11 years old, I immigrated to Canada, where although I had, you know, educational privilege, I lacked kind of guidance and encouragement from my environment that a lot of other children were fostered into. So for example, you know, they had after school programs that their parents could drop them off to, but my parents had, you know, two part-time jobs that they were working to try Mm -hmm. to make ends meet. So a lot of things that other children were able to foster through intramural sports and things like that, like I wasn't able to access those resources. Um, And then I was also used to a very different education system and methodology. So I actually failed middle school math because I didn't understand the Canadian school system. And even though in my home country of Pakistan, I was great. And I, you know, I was like one of them, mm-hmm. you know, I always got good grades and everything. So that was probably the first time where I realized, oh, maybe I'm not good at this thing. And I counted myself out of anything that had to do with math. Um, so it closed many pathways to me. So as I was growing up, um, I realized that there's, you know, a systemic streaming out of BIPOC through these educational streams. Um, so, you know, I was bouncing around between different university programs. I didn't know what I wanted to do, just kind of confused. Every few weeks I would change like, okay, maybe I'll do this and maybe I'll do that. Um, and then of course this also included things I couldn't do at all because it was too expensive. I didn't have the resources. I couldn't travel for school, things like that. So anyways, it would took me a lot of years to kind of discover what I loved and rediscover my love for science. And, you know, I ended up actually studying environmental science, which made me, you know, very happy. Um, But then after graduating, I worked in a few tech companies and I met other amazing women that are doing great things in like science and technology. And I was very inspired by them to kind of find my own version of a career in STEM. So I think I've been very lucky where Mm -hmm. I carve out a niche path where my education is so different than what I do my day job in. Um, And then I realized, you know, there are other people and other little girls out there and other little boys as well that don't know what they want to do and they don't know what they can do because they just don't know what options are available to them um, and what exists in the world. So I wanted to do something that helps bring stories of other women to these young children. So, and, you know, people have taken untraditional paths and created their own story. So that's kind of the journey Mm -hmm. that drew me. And it obviously was fraught with a lot of mental health struggles and financial struggles and, many different you know hurdles and setbacks and then you have to overcome those setbacks and you know it's been a long journey but um I think now I have a pretty good understanding of what I want to do and that has really made me more motivated to make sure that I can use my understanding of these you know life lessons and learnings to help someone else Mm -hmm. do you mind sharing some of those challenges that you faced in doing this work yeah so I think I mean some of the The two biggest ones, I think one of them would be running a business on its own separately. And then the other one was a more of a societal systemic issue. So I think the first one, um, the biggest challenge for me when sharing these issues of or sharing these stories of women is finding the right stories to share. 
So for me, oftentimes, you know, there's stories of triumph and outgoing, confident women, as we were talking about earlier, and they're all on social media and LinkedIn. Um, But what about, you know, stories of everyday women just living their life and they don't have a platform. So to be authentic, we kind of have to approach it at the grassroots level and like the community level. So, you know, reaching out to community-led activist groups in small townships, you know, across Canada and things like that. So I think that was a big challenge where I had to unlearn a lot of biases myself where, you know, you think, oh, an indigenous woman would be X, Y, Z. And then I had to unlearn, well, I need to know historically what are some women's challenges and and so forth. So there's a lot of education that would come even from an organizer's perspective. The second Mm -hmm. biggest challenge is funding. And I think you probably can relate to this as well. It's a very systemic issue. Um, But, you know, most government grants for small businesses are not built to support these type of organizations. So the fact that, you know, we don't really make a profit, so I'm not considered technically a business, but I'm not also an NGO at the right now either. But at the same time, I see tons of private and government grants and other funding opportunities being awarded to people who aren't of colors and some of them are actually run by friends and colleagues of mine so the funding disparities for people of color I think is a bit was a big challenge and it's not news so yeah that's something that I kind of faced through the you know process of building our stories in but before that it was more so just the struggles that come through being streamed out of a lot of things do you have any tips for some young folks? Like you said, I definitely understand the financial struggle as well and not having necessarily a particular status that enables you to receive certain fundings on top of the systemic issues that exist from systemic racism to, to just racialized folks being cut out completely of these yeah. sorts of spaces. But are there any tips that you've learned along the way that others might find helpful in dealing with the same issue? So, I mean, I think for me, the biggest thing was a lot of things, a lot of grants that are currently available, they have a laundry list of um, requirements that each person needs to meet. So you need to be XYZ, you need to be, have been functioning for two years, the person who's running it needs to have a Canadian degree, and so on and so forth. So for me, I think my biggest feedback was to question these requirements and push the organizations to change, even if you don't meet some of the criteria, apply anyway. And then as you're applying, reach out and challenge them. Like, why do you think I need to meet this criteria? Do I need a Canadian postgrad degree to run a nonprofit? And why does my education play a factor? So there's many systemic barriers that are built in. Ironically, they're supposed to be able to make it easier for them to be colorblind and sort of fund people across the board without any biases. But at the end of the day, it does. I mean, race definitely plays a factor. So grant-making organizations or government bodies cannot be colorblind in these aspects. So you do have to challenge them when you're applying. Um, I think it's better to apply and not get funding than to just sit back and let someone else get it. Not try. Not try at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think race definitely plays a factor because I think even if, you know, a white woman was doing the same thing that I'm doing now, she would approach operations and areas of impact very differently just because of the position of privilege and awareness of issues that she might have gone through through lived experiences will be very different. And I mean, the percentage of difference in funding, honestly, it's like a quick Google search away. So you can see that, you know, historically and at present, people of color, organization of color just do not get the same amount of funding, even if they will apply. Um, And then the other aspect of that is, a lot of times people of color will get, well, they might get some funding if it's, you know, a, a grant for people of color, 
they don't have unrestricted access to their funds to be able to use them as they see fit. A lot of times they have to use them in the way that the grant making organization says you should. So for example, for hiring or for people salaries and things like that, when you know, you might see a different way to approach it. But so, yeah, I don't know. I think the biggest thing is that people need to have unrestricted access to funds. They need to be able to access these funds without being streamed out through a long list of requirements that historically people cannot meet them. Like it's very unlikely that you'll be able to meet all those requirements where you've been making a profit and you have a team of plus five or more people and so on. That's just unrealistic for a lot of people. So yeah, I think my biggest thing is to just challenge the things that are out there and try without holding yourself back. I think for me, the biggest thing was I held myself back from quite a few things where if I had the tools and resources to know that, hey, I can do this. um, I think I might have been a little bit more upfront with putting myself out there and being uncomfortable. So have you had to kind of self-fund your project because of all these barriers? Yeah. So, I mean, other than that, the I was part of an incubator, a social impact incubator in Waterloo called St. Paul's Greenhouse. So I had to pitch for funding there. Um, and I thankfully did receive a little bit of funding. But other than that, I'm self-financing all of the associated costs. So because of that, I do have to maintain, you know, a nine to five role. And I have a day job that I work in in the tech industry. And I love that role. Um, but of course, that also means I have to put up with all the burnout that comes with that, the fund, the um, the lack of time and resources that I'm able to put towards my project. It's a huge toll on my own mental health and my time management because of, you know, all the work that I need to put in. So yeah, self-financing is a way to do it, but it's very difficult um, because you're putting all your money back into towards the business that you really like it does leave a lot less for you to live your life and enjoy, you know, a nice life. So um, yeah, self-financing is what I'm doing at the moment. And, you know, it's probably not something that I want to keep doing because it does play a huge toll on your mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's something I want people to be aware of that. Yeah, you can run your own business and self-finance and use, you know, some funding coming your way to help out. But at the end of the day, you need to be a little bit more realistic where you shouldn't, be doing something at your own expense just because you believe in a mission I think it's important to have a good balance I totally can relate to that leading in color again is also some yeah. micro grants and then the rest is self-funded and it's challenging mm-hmm. for sure oh, yeah. um, but you mentioned burnout and I think that's something that a lot of young people can relate to and often I find when we're in conversations around burnout it's always around white folks who are tired of allyship or Mm -hmm. uh, white folks who don't necessarily have the same barriers to entry and face the same oppressions that we do as racialized folks in racialized communities. And yet we are, again, kind of left to the sidelines, right? So what does Mm -hmm. burnout look like for us when it comes to, like you said, doing a nine to five job while also doing something like this and trying to balance both of those because you have to, right? If representation wasn't an issue, you wouldn't have to be doing this work. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the ways that you've been able to cope with that burnout? And have have you been able to? And and how has that progressed in your journey with our stories in? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean... If I'm being very honest, I don't think I'm dealing with it very well right now. Um, I mean, so I think one of the biggest issues for burnout was that you really, 
it would actually take a lot more strength to pretend like you're not having burnout. So putting on that face and being that, you know, model minority of someone who's working in entrepreneurship and doing their best work and is, you know, ticking off all the boxes where you're being active on social media and you're making change and you're connecting with your audiences and you're also connecting with different partners and you're working just being that perfect persona so that you're taken seriously um and even for me as a woman i have to be taken more seriously alongside you know male counterparts or um and as especially even as a younger person so the tiredness and the fatigue that comes from putting on that act was something that I had to realize and really learn that you don't have to do that. You can be someone who makes mistakes. You can be someone who takes it slow, who's not posting every single day, who's uh, maybe instead of, you know, doing an XYZ amount of programming a month, you're kind of slowing it down. And I think just realizing that you don't have to put on that act and it doesn't reflect on your, um, qualifications and your capabilities was something that was a big 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 uh, learning moment for me that if you're not operating at 100% of productivity that does not reflect on who you are as a person and your ability to make change in the world and make an impact so that was a big one Um, I think after that I think I started taking things a little bit easier and realizing that I need to delegate a couple of things and maybe I need to grow my team and there were so many people willing to support who also believe in the mission. Um, So I think that really helped. And I'm in that phase right now where I'm looking to grow my team a little bit more, our organization and our mandate and goals. Um, I really wanted to mention that our stories in STEM is focused on tackling the huge gender gap in Canada in science, technology, engineering, and math. So even though there is an increased demand for STEM professionals to fill these jobs, only about 20% of the STEM workforce is female. And only a small percentage of that is women of color. So um, I think this is really important to mention because the lack of diversity and representation makes it a lot more difficult to solve sort of complex global problems and community-based problems. So I think it's really important to kind of tackle this issue because you know, as girls in Canada grow, their interest in STEM fields decline. And we found statistics that girls as young as six think that they're inherently bad at math due to lack of encouragement that's linked to, you know, gender biases. Um, And furthermore, girls just can't picture themselves in STEM roles because they don't have enough positive role models to relate to. Um, So yeah, I think that's kind of one of the main reasons why we wanted to start our stories in STEM. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, we realized that, you know, you can't guarantee an interest that an interest in STEM will lead to a career in STEM, but because you can't be what you don't see. So representation and exposure to these role models is like a really important step. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it also mm-hmm. speaks to the challenges that you're talking about as well, yeah. right? Like these folks who you're trying to get interested in STEM to begin with, need to be able to see some sort of representation and how do you kind of fix this ongoing cycle of not having anybody there Mm -hmm. um so I think that's really interesting that that's the work that you're doing and how those challenges have played out for you Mm -hmm. but what are some of the most fulfilling pieces of the work that you do we know that it's often difficult to do this kind of work and like you've mentioned there's struggles from mental health to finances um to burnout but on at some point we continue doing this work anyway right (laughs) Um, and yeah so what are some of those reasons for you 
For sure. So I think at the core of our business, it's a social impact business. So whether that's through our business model, the products or the mission. So um, because we're bringing these stories of diverse Canadian women to young children, we are potentially impacting the lives of young children and their parents, their friends, their teachers. So it's a very important position to be in that, you know, I don't take lightly. Um, But why it is fulfilling is for a couple of reasons. One, because you can see the change within yourself. So I can see the type of person that I was, you know, 10, 20 years ago. I can see other girls like that and how different they're growing up compared to how I grew up. So just seeing that change that happens through having conversations even really helps. I mean, there's a really interesting story that, you know, makes me feel like I'm doing matters, uh, makes me feel like what I'm doing matters. Um, I ran this workshop with little girls to challenge some of their beliefs on, you know, what kind of people do what kind of jobs. So for example, um, I asked them, you know, what types of people design games? And we showed them some amazing female designers and VR professionals and digital artists. And it was awesome. And, you know, they kind of came out with a new understanding of what kind of people can, you know, how they, so for example, if you were to picture a doctor in your head, you might picture a woman in a lab coat. If you picture a scientist, you might picture a man. So just kind of rethinking those beliefs. Um, But after we ran that workshop, a father, one of the daughter's fathers actually sent me an email saying he didn't realize, you know, this girl started having a lot more interest in video games. And he could have shared this interest with his 11 year old daughter, but because it never crossed his mind, he never thought to even introduce this thing to her. And so now they play games together and she's really interested and she asks all these interesting questions about game mechanics and how to play certain things. So that made me really excited because it's not just about the children, it's about their parents, um, their relationships together and how they live a little bit more inclusive um, lifestyle where they're more aware of what's happening around them. It's obviously very small changes, but it's something that really makes me excited about the potential here. Amazing. I think often when we ask folks, what is the most fulfilling part of the work that they're doing amidst all the challenges that they face as racialized youth, it's often this particular success story or a moment where they saw the impact that they were able to have and that gave them kind of the motivation to continue pushing forward amidst the challenges, Mm -hmm. which I think is really important. Um, I'm wondering, because of the work that you're doing um, and speaking of like sustainability when it comes to finances and burnout Mm -hmm. and things like that, do you have any tips on ensuring that your work remains meaningful and fulfilling to you while not having to experience something like burnout and mm-hmm. pushing through without harming oneself, if that makes sense. Like yeah. knowing your boundaries and setting barriers when needed, but still wanting to make a difference in doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. I think the biggest thing for me is something that a lot of people told me is that even when you're running a nonprofit, you have to kind of approach it through where you are running a business and you have to think of yourself as part of that business. Um, you're not expendable Um, And you're not someone who has to take on the burden and the risk and the responsibility of everything. So what that means is, for example, if you're running an NGO, um, you don't just focus on operations and programming and running things, running things. You kind of have to set a good foundation, which means having documentation that's ready. So, for example, if you have documentation on new members that might join and have that ready and done on the side, because when there will be a time where you just can't do it. And so in that moment you will, um, you have to delegate and you have to be willing to let people in who can help support you and trust them that they believe in the vision. So for example, for me, um, 
conducting interviews with these women, I thought that because of all the education I've done in unlearning a lot of biases and things like that, I would be the best position to do this. And so when I brought someone else on as a volunteer and they were helping me conduct interviews, it was very hard for me to be hands off. Um, And so that's something that I have to realize that it's okay as long as I've done some work that lays out a foundation for someone else to carry carry it forward. It's okay even if I'm removed from the puzzle because that impact will happen despite my not being there. So I think that's something that we had to realize where um, if you are operating an NGO or something that, or an organization or something that's making an impact, you have to have the work for someone else to take it on if the time comes because there will be a time where you just can't do it and you're maybe sick or something happens and you know the work continues on and it goes on with that with or without you so I think that's something that I had to learn yeah I think giving up control is also a theme that's been popular amongst uh, our guests during these podcasts has mm-hmm. been what happens when you either age out of the youth space or yeah. whatever whatever time has come for you to hand things off. How do you go about doing that? And I know for me, that's definitely when the time comes going to be a struggle. So I definitely mm-hmm. appreciate the yeah. level of, of um, humility I think it takes to step back mm-hmm. and say, okay, I'm not the best person for this anymore, or I need to take a step back and and allow other people to fulfill your vision. Exactly. And sometimes that's hard to do as a racialized person, because you think because you've gone through something, you're the authority on that thing. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I've gone through this lived experience. I can understand this situation a lot better, but I think we have to give people a little bit of credit sometimes um, and see that once, you know, after a couple of conversations and making sure that they understand what your position is and where you're coming from, that sometimes people are willing to learn and then able to take your story as part of them while they're doing some other work. So I think being open to that as a racialized person is a little important sometimes too. Yeah. And I think building that sort of solidarity across Mm -hmm. racialized communities as well can be helpful in terms of demonstrating support and solidarity for one another when you're taking on this work or when you're passing it on as well. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely something to keep in mind for those listening. Yeah. Um, We've talked a little bit about both your successes and challenges, but has there been any other measure of success in particular or stepping stones that you've reached as of late that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, for sure. So I think um, something that I'm really proud of is that in like before we launched our book and we were open for pre-orders, we actually did a Kickstarter and that was a big challenge for me just learning the crowdfunding space, how does it work and everything that comes along with that. So I think one of the biggest successors, uh, successes for me at the time was how much funding we were able to raise in a very short amount of time. So I think we raised about $5,000 in a month, which was amazing. And even more so than the money, it was um, how many people supported the movement. So even if they donated a dollar or two, just seeing the number of backers meant that that was you know, that amount of people, that X number of people believed in the mission. So even if one or two people had supported me, I'd be so satisfied. But knowing that, you know, there were this amount of people that they just you know, follow along and see what happens and they just donated like a dollar, um, you know, pledged a dollar, sorry. It just made me feel very validated in a way. And that validation goes a long way, especially when we're talking earlier about feeling burnout having that validation that this person believes in the mission and they want to support with what they can, even if they can't buy a book, they can't do that kind of stuff. They're just, you know, joining our newsletter, keeping up with things, sharing content. 
as one of the early supporters was a huge win. So I think that was one of our successes early on. Um, another big success, I think, is building a good community. So building a community of um, people on our newsletter was really important because that meant these people actually wanted to hear from you. Um, they want to keep up with what's happening. So those are a couple of successes that are a little more tangible and you know measurable that I think were really helpful for us. That's amazing. Congratulations on having so much success so early on. And I know you said these three years have flown by and that is like such a testament, I think, to the amount you've been able to achieve during those three years, which is fantastic. What are some of the opportunities available for young people to help support you or to get involved? Yeah. So at the moment, I am growing our team. Um, I think the best thing would be if you would like to be involved in some capacity to email me at ourstoriesin at gmail.com. Some positions that we're currently looking for are people who are interested in um, workshops and programming. So at the moment, other than our book that is currently open for pre-orders and it's shipping in two months, so super exciting, um, we want to make sure that we're working with grassroots organizations in different communities to sort of lead these storytelling and inclusive learning opportunities workshops. And we're working with a bunch of different organizations to sort of create the content. Um, But if you're interested in being part of that um, and you want to be a little bit more hands-on on working with children, working with parents and educators um, and creating some of that content with us, um, definitely reach out because we would love to work together. And where can people pre-order your book? Yeah, so everything online on the internet is under Our Stories In. So if you go on ourstoriesin.com or Instagram at Our Stories In, you can find everything there. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me, Sarisha. Before you head off, uh, we do want to invite you to take part in our final segment, which we were calling <laughs> How I Would End Racism. Okay. Um, so as young leaders of color, we are constantly actually trying to reduce the harm racism causes, mm-hmm. both on ourselves and in our communities, while we fight to end it in various ways. But imagine if we could do so instantly. What is your funniest, most creative way that you would end racism if you could? (laughs) I love this question. Um, But yeah, since I work in children's literature, I'm thinking kindergarten rules apply 100%. So if you're, you know, if you do something overtly racist or microaggressions, they call your parents and put you in timeout and they make you, you know, sit across from the person that you took, you know, sandbox space from and have to talk and have a discussion with them. I feel like if more people learned like how children learn, especially when you're a grown up, things could be a lot different. And I'd love to see some grown adults in timeout, no juice box, things like that. (laughs) So that's my way. That sounds amazing. The timeout (laughs) box for racists. (laughs) Yeah, just go in timeout and you have no sandbox. Yeah, and you just have to learn and you have to sit across from the person and you can't leave the room until you shake hands and hug and then you everyone's happy. But yeah, I think that's that's how I would do it. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Thank you so much again for joining us. Um, and we can't wait to read your book. Oh, thanks, Arisha. Yeah, I'm super excited. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to hear other podcasts coming up. So very excited. And I love what you're doing with Leaders of Color. Thank you. Thank you.
And for those listening, for the first time, we have launched our Patreon called Leaders of Color after the podcast. If you're interested in supporting our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash leaders of color. And for as little as $2 a month, support us in creating a platform for racialized youth to share their stories and the work that they're doing in their communities. Thank you again so much, Eamon. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. Bye.